told my wife this morning that I loved her. And I was talking with somebody today, and I said I loved fishing. So you probably assume that I mean those words differently as applied to fishing and my wife. Uh, One means one thing, and one means the other. So in our English language, we have to sort of figure that out on the basis of, of who's saying it to whom in regards to what the definition of the word is. In the Greek language, there's four different words for love. And so depending on whether you're talking about fishing or talking about your wife or God determines which of the four words is used. But when it's translated from the New Testament into English, same word is translated, uh, four words are translated one word. That's all of them are translated love. And so you don't know which one of the four is being used. You kind of have to determine from the context. And so the uh, highest form of love, the, the Greek word agape, uh, basically means uh, God's love or love without, uh, uncondition- it's, uh, without conditions, unconditional love. And so that love is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's, a, it's an action, it's a way of treating people, it's a way of acting in regards to other people. And so that's the big deal in the New Testament. In your notes, number one, the most distinguishing characteristic for the church is that we love one another. And so um, the way it probably should have worded it is that it's the ought to be the most distinguishing characteristic for the church. That phrase, distinguishing characteristic, means that we can uh, identify, we can tell uh, that we're part of God's family by the way we act. So it's our uniform. If you see a policeman in a uniform, you immediately identify him as a policeman because he has a uniform on. Uh, In the airport, I often see uh, people in the military, in the army, uh, different branches of the military, and you can immediately spot them because they have a uniform on, and the uniform indicates what branch of service they're in in, and the fact that they are indeed in the military. And so uh, football players wear uniforms Each team has their own. Basketball players have uniforms. And so the uniform that's worn by uh, various people, groups, identifies who they are. It's their distinguishing characteristic, their uniform. So the uniform that the church is supposed to wear is that of uh, agape love. That is, everybody knows who we are by the way we love one another. John 13, 34, a new commandment. That's interesting, that statement, a new commandment, because the commandment was given in the Old Testament repeatedly. But Jesus says it's now a new commandment, and by new, it's uh, sort of a new emphasis, a new level uh, of how this is going to apply. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And, And now comes the new part, even as I have loved you. So Jesus said, okay, this is the standard. You love each other the same way that I, Jesus, God, love you. That's the standard of loving each other. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the distinguishing characteristic of the church. Everyone will know exactly who you are because of this uniform that you wear, this way of acting, this way of behaving, this way of treating each other. Now, when I said initially this is the way it ought to be, it's because This is not the way it normally is. Very few people are able to identify those who are believers or part of a church by the way they love each other because we don't really follow that command very well. 
to the point where we have this distinguishing characteristic about us that people, everyone around us, can immediately identify who we are because of the way we live and the way we act. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 15, 17, this I command you that you love one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.13, you are called to freedom, brethren. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Ephesians 4.2, now notice the aspects of love here. Love is a multifaceted kind of command. It includes a whole lot of different uh, actions or uh, behavior patterns with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And in fact, as you go through the New Testament and study the topic of love and you ask the question, how many different aspects of love are there? How many different words are connected to love in the New Testament as a characteristic or a way of behaving? And you'll find that there's over a dozen uh, descriptive words or characteristics or behavior patterns for uh, love. First Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. And so I pray for everybody in our church every week by name, including kids, and I have some sort of set things that I pray. Colossians 1, 9 through 11 is usually a prayer that I pray always. Uh, the, the Lord would fill you with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that He would strengthen you with His might and His power. And then this is one that I pray, Lord, would you cause each person in our church to abound, increase in love for each other in our church and for all men to the point that people would look at the way we treat each other, the way we treat each, uh, our neighbors and uh, people at work, and they would identify us as believers uh, because of the way we love one another. First Peter 1.22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently, that means there's some level of passion and devotion involved. First Peter 4, 8, above all, above all, that means of all the things I could tell you, this is like number one on the list. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That means that if you really love somebody, they don't defend you. Uh, you forgive them uh, quickly, if not immediately. That's what love does. Doesn't take offense, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't get feelings hurt. Uh, and uh, so the average individual says, well, I'm not quite there yet. And that's why we don't have this distinguishing characteristic in most churches today. It's because we're just not quite there yet. First John 3.11, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. First John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So we, we get the first one, believe in Jesus, that's what it takes to go to heaven, and love one another. And it's sort of like those two are right there together. John, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So again, it's a characteristic of those who are born again those who know God, those who are in his family. First John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected, perfected, made mature in us. Um, His love for us as we love each other. Number two, loving others is not a warm, fuzzy emotion, but a way of acting. A way of acting towards others, a way of treating them. So if I say to my wife, I love you, what am I saying? Am I saying, I have a warm fuzzy? That's the way we tend to mean it when we say it. It's sort of like, I like you. Uh, You're wonderful. Well, the, the nature of saying, I like you, you're wonderful, is automatically conditional. In other words, if we like someone, if they're, we're saying they're wonderful, it's because of what they've done. Um, and so real love, when husbands love the wives the way Christ loved the church, it's uh, unconditional agape love, and it's not an expression of emotion or feeling. It's not an expression of gratefulness or thankfulness. It's an expression or a statement of commitment. And so that's what I've done with Patty. I wrote those out and gave them to her a number of years ago. I said, every time I say to you, I love you, these are the commitments I'm making to you, and I'm remaking them every time I say, I love you. And if you ever want to quiz me on these, uh, uh, just randomly say, oh, by the way, what does that mean? I'll rattle those off. This is what it means. And so uh, I won't give you all seven, but basic one is I'll forgive you of anything. No matter how bad it is, no matter how many times you've done it, I'll forgive you quickly. Another one that was a biggie when I first made it was I'll not get angry at you, not even a little bit irritated, no matter what you do, no matter how many times you do it. And the one that's probably the most meaningful to her is I'll talk to you anytime you want for as long as you like. I will never do this, which means land the plane, and I will never do this, which means give me the bottom line, which is my natural inclination because Patty takes about three times longer to tell a story than she really needs to, and I often become impatient. But my commitment to her, I will listen to you anytime you want to talk for as long as you want to talk, and I will honor you by showing sincere attention to your words. And so occasionally when my eyes glaze over, she will say, I love you. Oh, yeah. What were you saying? I got, okay. Uh, so it's a commitment that I make. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I like to do. But because I love her, I'm willing to uh, make a commitment, make a sacrifice, do something that I know is really important to her. Patty likes to talk. She can't think without talking. She can't solve problems without talking. She can't have peace without talking. That's what she does. Uh, I'm just the opposite. I can't think when I'm talking, but I really don't need to talk. I just need to listen. And, and anytime she wants to talk, I listen attentively, and that's the way I honor her is by uh, showing sincere attention to her words. Now, I wouldn't do that just if it were up to me, but because I know that's what she likes, that's what she wants, that's what makes her happy, I make the commitment this is what I will do. And so love is a behavior, it's an action based on the other person's needs, wants, uh, what makes, gives them joy. And so I figured out what those were, wrote those up, and uh, redid those. In fact, increased the number at our 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, I think I wrote a dozen, went from 7 to 12. And uh, I can't remember 12, but I can remember 7. And so the 12 were mostly for all the people that were at this celebration. (laughs) <laughs> to impress all of you. Uh, 
Patty has them, though, and she knows what they are. So it's a way of acting. Number three, because loving others is such a big deal to God, he has given us many principles and laws in the Bible to help us and guide us in this difficult assignment. So if we say uh, love people in a way that makes a huge difference in them and is an obvious characteristic of you, there are multiple, multiple commands in Scripture telling you exactly what to do and how to do it. Most of the commitments I made to Patty were based on those that I found in the Bible uh, telling us what uh, to do and, and how to love people. Number four, almost every one of the principles that are given to us seem upside down, counterintuitive. So we're born, every one of us, are born with a uh, sin nature. We're born with natural inclinations that we call our flesh. We inherited it from uh, our father who inherited it from his all the way back to Adam that became part of who we are as people when Adam sinned. And so I had eight kids, and uh, as they started interacting with us and each other, I noticed that they had some common characteristics. They all sort of did the same thing. And I thought, ah, they all inherited that from their mother. Uh, they all about two said, mine. I mean, like every one of them. At some point, that word just came out. Mine. That's not yours. That's mine. And, uh, and then at a pretty early age, they all said, not me. I didn't do it. In fact, I remember one time I had eight of them lined up there. And the chocolate chip cookies were gone. And they all said to a kid, I didn't eat any. Somebody did. But where did they learn that? Every one of them basically had the same characteristics. They were selfish. They were lazy. They lied. They got angry. Every one of them. Uh, and so did you. Those are the things we inherit, we're born with, this flesh, this natural tendency. So the commands in Scripture that God gives us, the principles that he gives us, are basically counterintuitive because they're totally opposite of what we're born with as a natural inclination. And so if we get into discussion and we start talking about, so what do you like, smallmouth bass or big mouth bass? Largemouth bass, what's your favorite? Uh, what about uh, salmon, steelhead? What's your favorite salmon, Chinook? Uh, you know, we can just talk about various things that we like, or then we can move into politics and say, uh, what do you think? Uh, oh, this is what I think. What, uh, we can start expressing opinions about what we think, and we can get some fairly heated opinions going, possibly, or we can start talking about how to grow corn. We all have opinions and ideas how things ought to be, and so when it comes to loving each other, loving our wife, loving our husband, loving our parents, our children, our neighbors, each other, those that we don't like very well, those, in fact, we don't like at all, um, what do you think? What do I think? Can we just brainstorm about this and figure out how we're going to do it, do it well? 
fact is if we do, we probably won't come up with much that works. God gives us those principles in Scripture, and they are totally upside down what the natural individual would come to as a conclusion on their own. When I was a kid, uh, the only cake I can ever remember my mom making, I'm sure she made more other kinds, but I don't remember what they were. The only one I remember is pineapple upside down cake. And I think the reason I remember it is because I liked it so well. And I was always pretty excited about it. And in fact, when it came out of the oven and got uh, flipped up and the thing came off, if nobody was looking, I would reach down and, and scoop off a bunch of the, the uh, top and just... <laughs> and then when she said, who did that? I would say, I don't know. But I remember the pineapple upside down cake. And so I call these commands of God upside down commands because they just don't seem logical. They're counterintuitive. They don't make sense to us. Uh, but they always work. Isaiah 55, God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, your, uh, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And so uh, I often get asked questions by people that listen to the radio or read my blog or uh, that come to a service. They'll ask me about such and such and about half the time when I answer someone's question, my answer is the same. And it goes something like this. I don't have a clue. Um, I'm going to ask Jesus when I get to heaven. And people will say, well, I thought you knew everything. Now, I know a few things. But on this one here, I don't have a clue. Sorry. And... Uh, so there's quite a few things that just don't make sense to me, and I know the answer if I read it, because God's Word is true, and if I put it into practice, then one of the things that will happen when we do it even though we don't get it, if we do it even though it doesn't make sense to us, once we do it and obey it, it will make sense. That's just the way God works. But often, because it doesn't make sense to us, we don't ever do it initially. Number five, one of the distinguishing characteristics is that we usually do things our way and fail miserably. So when we talk about the distinguishing characteristic of the church, the distinguishing characteristic of us as people, particularly in the United States, is I'm going to do it my way. Well, if you want to do it a way that is guaranteed to fail, that's the way to do it. But that's sort of touted as the, the American way. That's the John Wayne way, or who was it that sang that song? Somebody, I did it my way. But uh, it sounds macho, cool, tough, but it isn't wise and it isn't godly and there is not a shred of hope for success when you do it your way. But that's uh, kind of, I did it my way. It may sound cool, but it's stupid in the sense of the results that come from it. Deuteronomy 12.8, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 21.2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way of death. Number six, when a principle doesn't make sense to us, we need to obey it anyway, and then it will. So it's... Often the word used is mystery. God is the revealer of mysteries, but 
we like to say, God, if you explain it to me, make it clear, then I'll do it. But God says, no, there's an element of faith here. And if you will obey it and do it, then I'll make it clear. Then you'll understand it. You'll know it works. Um, Number seven, a major principle in human relationships is make yourself last and God will make you first. If you make yourself first, God will make you last. So of the principles that are in the New Testament that are written for relationship building, principles that are basically the fulfillment of loving one another the way God loves us, uh, I've identified five biggies. Five that are biggies based on the number of times that they're repeated in the New Testament. Five things that are essentially, uh, are essential to really loving others and having great relationships with other people. And the fact is that when you do these principles in relationship to other people, then God blesses you and your character grows to become like him. So this one is a biggie. Uh, in your Interaction with people, we, we all the time compete. And, uh, and so as long as we keep up that practice, then we're going to have a really difficult time in our relationships. There's always going to be the conflicts. If you win the argument, you probably really lost. So one of the things that was a characteristic of me for most of my life Hopefully it's not been the case in the last 10 years because I've really worked hard at eliminating all arguing, debating uh, from my uh, discussions with others, even though at times, whether it's fishing, hunting, theology, politics, there's always somebody that says something that I want to straighten them out. But there's a command that I've memorized that Paul wrote to Timothy. The Lord's bondservant must not be argumentative. Must not be argumentative. And it's a principle. This principle here. If you win, you really lose. Because God is the one who is the ultimate decider of who wins. It may appear like because you won the argument, you had the better argument, you had the, uh, the, the greater words, the more force of personality, whatever it is that tends to convince you that you won whatever debate or argument you were involved in. Uh, if you won, uh, you really lost, ultimately. That's the way it'll work out. If you get your way initially, you won't much after that. Now, when Patty and I got married, I discovered I could always win. When it came to, we're going to do it my way or your way? Just because of the, uh, you know, being firstborn and the family I grew up in and she was a family of girls and, and uh, because she was a girl and she tended to have a gift of graciousness and gentleness, whenever there was, we're going to do it this way or this way, I could always win. Now, when I won, I thought I won. Ah, I'm the macho male man, leader of the family. We did it my way. And after a while, I started recognizing and realizing that every time I won, I really lost. Um, now, if, if people sometimes will debate this with me, they'll say, well, people will walk all over you. I said, that's only true if God is dead. If he's dead, then you take care of you because no one else will. 
If God is dead, then win the argument. If God is dead, then get your way. Then if, if God is dead, watch out for your own rights. Because if you don't, no one else will, and people will walk all over you. But the fact is, God isn't dead, and he's very involved in the affairs of people and the relationships between people. He can make anything happen and work. And the basic principle is, if you lose, you'll win. If you're last, I'll make you first. If you humble yourself and become a servant, then you will become the greatest. It's totally uh, the opposite of our natural inclination. Um, But if we can overcome the natural inclination and choose to be last, choose to lose, choose to give in, choose to defer, then it's amazing how much God blesses us and how much he exalts us. So we're on the book of Philippians. I decided to do this backwards tonight. Instead of starting with the passage, I was going to more end with the passage. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this attitude, attitude, attitude. That's a way of thinking. It's a way of acting. It's a character trait. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, that is, I mean, if anybody's first, he is. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? The major thing he emptied himself of were his rights, his personal rights as God, the right to be honored, the right to be obeyed, um, all that God would uh, require of us, all those rights that he had as God. He set those all aside, the right to be obeyed and followed and honored and uh, treated well. Those were all set aside. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, Being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that was the ultimate and the act of humility, even if he just started out as a mere person. But he started out as God, the creator of every individual who actually crucified him, the creator of the material that was used to crucify him. And then for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's sort of a theology quiz question. God exalted the Father, exalted the Son above every name bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Why did God do that for his son? Many would answer the question, well, because he was his son, because he was God. And that is not the answer. The answer is because he humbled himself uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. For that reason, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So it starts out by saying, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard that position as something to be held on to. But he emptied himself of all that he was as God, all of his rights, everything that he had. And so have the attitude, me, that he had. And if I do what he did, 
that is, empty myself of all my rights that I have as a person in regards to other people, then, for that reason, God will highly exalt me even as he did Jesus. To the degree that I humble myself, to that degree, God will exalt me. To the degree I make myself last, to that degree, God will make me first. It's not that we're winning, but we're having influence. We're having influence, and we're being used, and we're being esteemed and honored by people uh, as well as by God because we lose. We choose to. Because we lay down our rights, we choose to. We do what Jesus did. We have the attitude in ourselves which was also in him. And because he did that, for that reason, God exalted him above every name. And so he will do the same in our relationships, uh, marriage, at work, with neighbors, in the church. When we choose to be last, God makes us first. When we choose to lose, he makes us the winner. Um, Matthew twenty twenty five. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. At least that's not the way it's supposed to be. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 13, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now the, the situation here was a custom during the time that Jesus lived was when you uh, ate uh, dinner, you didn't sit at a table like we do. Uh, you reclined it on, on a bench, as it were. And so you had your plate on the bench, and your elbow was on the bench, and the food was here, and your legs were sitting outside, and everybody was laying on a bench. And because you were walking in the streets uh, where donkeys and sheep and cows walked with sandals, uh, you got a lot of poop on your feet. And so your feet are up in the air, often in someone else's face. So the thing that you did when you walked into a house is your feet got washed. Most homes had someone designated to wash people's feet, uh, the kid, the servant, uh, uh, the, whoever. Now they come into the upper room for the Last Supper. There is no one there to wash the feet. So somebody of the 12 needs to decide, I will wash everyone else's feet. Well, they had had an argument on the way there over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who was going to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. They even got the mom involved in the debate over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So after having this debate for some time walking down the street, and they get into the room, and they get ready to have the last supper with Jesus, and they, uh, somebody needs to wash. I'm not going to wash your stinking feet. And nobody did. So there they are, eating with stinky feet. And then he, Jesus, poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter saying, this, 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 this isn't right. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter, you know, he's kind of a guy of extremes. He says, uh, Lord, then wash my, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Uh, basically, it's sort of a picture of uh, you're saved, but it's good to practice confession of sin. Uh, you're going to heaven, but you're still messed up. So uh, examine your life, can confess sins. Take a bath periodically, wash your feet. Uh, 
you're clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one who was betraying him, speaking of Judas, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now the obvious answer was, well, you just washed our feet. Now Jesus is asking, obviously, for a a motive here, uh, an attitude. Do you understand what just took place? Do you get this? Does it make sense to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you do them. And so it's doing things that are very humbling. That's not your place. That isn't something that you need to do. I mean, if somebody's going to do it, they should do it. Uh, It's becoming a slave, becoming a servant, taking a role, uh, basically being the loser, uh, taking last place, being the servant, the slave of all. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. That's a nice three-word command, isn't it? Give no offense, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I also please all men in all things. So Paul at one point says, I do everything to please God, not to please people. That uh, statement is in regards to their praise of him. This statement, I please all men, is not having to do with them praising or esteeming him, but so as to influence them to faith in Christ. I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved so that they may be saved. Paul basically says, I really work hard not to offend people, not to argue, not to debate, not to win, not to compete. Mark 9.33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. "What What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent. They were a bit embarrassed. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. Now, Jesus taught this principle to his disciples over and over again. Uh, They were kind of dense, even as I am. Matthew 23, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So that's the law of God, and it works. It works. Number eight, this principle of human relationships is probably the hardest one to follow and obey, but the hard ones produce the greatest results. So if we say, okay, I'm going to grow in my love for my wife. I'm going to grow in my love for my neighbor. I've got a guy at work that I just can't stand. I'm going to learn how to love him the way Christ loves me. So of all the things you can do, this will be the difficult one. This will be the hard one. This will be the one that's really tough to pull off because it's so unnatural. But it will produce the greatest results if you really want to influence people for Christ. And if you really want to stand out in a crowd as someone that's different. Um, This requires a great deal of self-confidence. It requires a great deal of faith in God. It requires a great deal of security in who you are because you're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to defend anything. 
Number nine, when we truly want to do God's will and do things His way instead of our own way, He will give us the strength to pull it off. So God's strength, God's grace comes into our life at the point of obedience, not before. So we choose and we act, and as we do that, then God grants strength and ability. I'm going to do uh, this coming Sunday at 10.15 in my theology and doctrines class. I'm going to talk about grace and works as one of the most misunderstood, misapplied principles in the Bible for the church today. Um, In your notes, number 10, grace isn't the freedom to do what we want, but the power to do what he wants. So God gives an impossible command that love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Make yourself last. Make yourself servant of all. Uh, It's unnatural. It's uncomfortable. It's counterintuitive. But when we do what God says to do, he is pleased and he grants us the strength to be able to do it. And then the results come from him and relationships are enhanced and people are attracted to faith in Christ. And we bear much fruit for him. <clears throat> whenever I have a, any kind of a squeaky moment with people, I journal about it. And I, first of all, write a little bit about the interaction, the words, um, and then I write, this is what I should have done. This is what I should have said. This is how I should have acted how I should have responded as opposed to what I did. And so I try to instill in my brain because, again, it's so counterintuitive. It's just we just do things natural and, oh, I blew that one. And so the number of mess-ups, goof-ups, wrong words, wrong actions in my life are beyond counting. But uh, I, I want to get better. And so it's thinking about what I said, what I did, how I acted in applying this principle, and then redoing it in my head in writing. This is what I should have done. And then I added at the end, Lord, this is what I will do if you grant me the grace to do it. Help me. I hunger and thirst to please you. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, Grant me the grace to be able to uh, follow this principle. And he loves to uh, give us the grace to do what we ought to do when we humbly uh, want to do it. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this statement. Uh, Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And so what I want is I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to do the things that he doesn't want me to do. And so I want inside of me that to change the things that I am inclined to do naturally without thinking about it. I want my heart to change, my motives to change, my attitude to change, my character to change. And it takes a lot of work, but you keep working at it and use every mistake as a, as a classroom experience of what works, what doesn't, what's right from God's perspective, what's wrong. So 
Make yourself last. God makes you first. Humble yourself. He exalts you. Don't win because when you do, you lose. Don't take first because if you do, you actually are last. It's upside down, but it works because it's God's principle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would obey you even though it doesn't seem um, logical from our human perspective and our human mind, but we would acknowledge the truth of your word. There's a way that seems right to men, but the end of that way is failure. Pray that we would choose to do things the way you did them, Lord Jesus. We would have the attitude in ourselves which was also in you. Help us to do that. Grant us your strength. Grant us your grace. We love you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.